This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. My name is Brandon Poen, and of course, as always, I am joined by my co-host, F. Scott Field. And today, we have one of the best guests we could possibly imagine. We have a legend here. We have the one and only Dr. Jeff Moore. Now, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Jeff Moore is a passionate physical therapy clinician and educator responsible for promoting physical therapist version 2.0. He received his DPT from University of St. Augustine, and he got his manual therapy certification from St. Augustine, and he also got his certification in spinal manipulation. He also completed fellowship training in orthopedic manual therapy through evidence in motion, and he has been working mainly in outpatient orthopedics. He has created and launched the Institute of Clinical Excellence, PT on Ice, in 2012, and where he currently teaches the lumbar and cervical spine management courses. He became a faculty member with evidence in motion in 2015 and he is involved with the PT on Ice, EIM Clinical Practice, and Pain Refrained Podcast. Jeff, first of all, thank you so much for all that you have done for the profession as you're one of the most dedicated PTs that I know, and you have helped me and others a great deal. And first, I wanted to extend my deepest gratitude for all that you've done. Was there anything that we didn't mention in your brief bio that you'd like our audience to know about you? No, Brandon, thank you so much. That was a very kind bio and I appreciate it. And you know, it's funny to hear a thank you because honestly, man, I'm just doing what I love. I mean, the opportunity to work with you guys and, and to be in clinic alongside of you is, is really my dream. So, so this is just a guy doing what he loves and, and happy to get back in there every day and, and try to make a little bit of change. So no, man, you covered it great and, and really, really appreciate it. Awesome, Jeff. Uh, I'm, I'm curious as to your opinion on this, but personal and professional development are so essential to any person in the healthcare field, right? What are some of your recommendations for someone transitioning from a student to an entry-level provider in order to progress their own personal development in this day and age? Scott, great question, man. And, and the bottom line is you've got to put time aside to reflect. I would say the biggest miss that I see is we don't devote legitimate chunks of time after our endeavors on really reflecting on how things went. You know, so I, I tell a lot of my students and colleagues and friends, you know, when I wrap up a day at clinic, so I got done last night about 8 p.m. I, I had a pretty late day in clinic last night. And I always take that five or 10 minutes, Scott, when I go to my truck, usually it's an empty parking lot and the last guy out of there. But I go to my truck and I, I just sit there for a minute. I think back over my patients. So I've got my patient list and think back over, you know, what went well and what didn't, you, you know, which ones do I feel like, you know, I was really of some significant use and they walked away fully engaged, really on board. But then in the, in the cases where it's like, God, what was it about that 430, you know, that just didn't feel right? 
right? Like, and then I reflect on on the session, you know, and, and when do I feel I lost them or what key misses did I make that didn't get that person on board? And I think by taking that relatively immediate reflection moment, and this goes, Scott, for anything you do, you know, right after the event, just devoting a little bit of time to what went well, what didn't and why, and then taking some notes on that and, and, and seeing if you can start picking up some trends on, you know, when, when I'm finishing sessions and I'm just feeling like we never really locked in, you know, what, where were the common errors? And you're going to start seeing some trends of, you know what, I'm not reassessing after the exercise. And I think that's why the patient's not buying in or you know, what have you. Everyone's going to have their own issues where I think a big one is, you know, there's times where I, I'm in a rush and I don't walk the patient up to the front desk and explain to Laura what's going on and, and how, how I want the patient scheduled going forward. And there's something really incomplete about me sending the patient up there and saying, hey, Laura, can you get this guy in the books? As opposed to, hey, Laura, you know, Matt and I just finished up and we're looking to go twice next week and here's why and, and here's my times. It takes me another 30 seconds, Scott, to do that. But there's times, man, where, where I'm in the hustle and I don't do that. And anyhow, the point here is that if you stop right afterwards and you reflect, you're going to start to see these trends on, on areas that could use some improvement. And, and if you do that and you notice those trends, you're going to change those behaviors. But I think a lot of times folks don't set that time aside, regardless of what their endeavor is, to really reflect on what could have been better and making sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah, Jeff, I couldn't agree more. There, there's a good amount of research out lately that shows that reflection is actually one of the things that differentiates an expert clinician from a novice. So good point, you know? You know, and I think, Scott, too, the more you do it, man, the more it starts happening in real time. So, I mean, there, there's something to be said for that structured moment after after right. clinic or right. after school or whatever. But the more you do it, the more you start catching your mistakes in real time. So now you're with that patient and you're about to do a treatment. You're like, oh, hold on. I haven't assessed him or hold on. I haven't ruled out this hypothesis. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm getting ahead of myself. So now you're actually thinking in real time in clinic. And that's when I think your outcomes and relationships start to really change. Absolutely. Good point. Yeah, for sure, Jeff. And, you know, it's kind of ironic, too, when you kind of say there's so many different ways and times that you can do in reflection, like, because everyone's a little bit differently. Like, what I normally do is, like, when I'm writing the note, I just do my reflection as I'm writing the note, and then I really think through it then. So, I mean, I think whatever works to every individual, is, but as long as that reflection happens. Uh, that's right. And I think uh, that's great, Brandon, to bring that up, because the, the variance is so important, right? Everyone's going to have their own system, and trying to force someone's system into your paradigm makes very little sense, right? You you have time when you have it. The important thing is that you value value enough to make it, right? You value that reflection enough that you make that time, whatever that opportunity is for you. Just make sure that you don't go weeks and weeks and you're not critically reflecting on your practice or your behaviors. Because if you are, you, if, if, that's, if that's your model, right? And you're not reflecting, you know, again, you're not going to wind up with 10 years of experience. You're going to wind up with one year of experience 10 times, right? And there's not a lot of growth to be had there. Good point. Good point. Jeff, uh, mentorship seems to be a bit of a buzzword these days. Uh, do you think you could explain to our audience why someone should seek out a mentor, uh, maybe how to select a good mentor, and how to really initiate that whole process of reaching out to a potential mentor? Yeah, yeah, you're right, Scott. It, it's a huge topic, and, and that's a big question. But to break it down, I think the first part there is, you know, why should you seek out mentorship? Man, I, I think mentorship has been valuable for time eternal, right? I, I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, what trade you go back into. I mean, having a mentor, having, you know, being an apprentice and being in that relationship was always key to developing expertise, 
right? It doesn't matter if you're crafting swords or, or putting shoes on horses um, or being a physical therapist. I mean, having somebody around you who has been in the grind and who knows their way around it to be able to guide you a little bit and bump your needle when needed. I mean, that has been valuable forever. I think it might, might be getting more buzzy nowadays because we have social media and different ways to make things, you know, turn the volume up on different topics. But the reality is the importance of that role has been going on forever. And I think the reason is, Scott, there's so many ways to learn, man. I mean, and nowadays there's more ways to learn. It's wonderful. I mean, there, there's so many didactic ways to digest information online, live. But at the end of the day, there's no substitute for having somebody correcting you in real time. None. There's no substitute in having a mentor that you're working with in the clinic, right? Or having someone you're closely working with from a distance relationship where you're reporting back, hey, here's what I just did and here's the decisions I made and what do you think? Or even better yet, is somebody literally there with you saying, Hey, what are you thinking right now? Like, I I think I see where you're heading. Can you explain to me why you're heading there? Those moments are so transformative and so poignant because you're right in it. And so getting that level of feedback truly shifts the needle of your behavior. And so I guess that's why I recommend somebody reach out because there's just no substitute for real-time feedback. For that day or even that moment, having someone tell you what they're seeing and why, because the reality is even with good self-reflection, Scott, it's hard to fully see outside of yourself. So I think the the best step, if if you can't have a mentor in the room with you, is to videotape your clinic behaviors, you know, videotape your eval and your treatment, and of course, get the approval from the patient, get the consent from the patient, but then have someone watch that and you watch it yourself. Because that, that gives you the best chance to observe your behavior. Because Scott, it's amazing, man. And I guess this answers your question for me, really, is that it's incredible the discrepancy between what you think you're doing clinically and what you're actually doing clinically. Yeah, and, for and, sure. and that, that seems crazy yeah. because you get done and you're like, oh, that went pretty well, you know? Then you go roll the game film and you're like, oh my lord. <laughs> like, you know, I I miss key, I miss key questions. Um I, I, I miss very noticeable body language by my patient that she wasn't understanding what I was saying and I blew past it. I mean, you just can't believe as you watch the film unroll how many major gaps there were. And that's the role of a great mentor is to to help bring you to that light in in, in those realizations earlier than you would if you were trying to just self-reflect. So um, I guess that's where I think the importance is, is that it's just hard to see those things. And if someone with experience and know-how can help you see them earlier, your overall trajectory is going to be so much different. Sure. How do you reach out for it? I think we're spoiled now, Scott, because you can track so many people nowadays, right? So, I mean, just the ability of these podcasts, of social media in general, and the way that we're all so interconnected at these conferences, you can track people really well. And so I'm a huge believer in that. You got to figure out who are the three to five people that you deeply admire. And, and, and that, that deep admiration should come from time of consistently tracking their content and just saying, I love everything this person's putting out. They just jive with me for whatever reason. Our value system, um, our overall take on things, I would do anything to learn from them. And you get three or five people on your docket and then you start just reaching out and getting to their courses and getting a part of their circles and in spending time with them. I think about, you know, my progression with Evidence in Motion. I mean, those guys were heroes to me. They still are. And then just figuring out, okay, I look up to those people. I'm going to find a way to get in their circle. You know, I'm going to spend time around them. And then through that, I'm going to develop a mentoring relationship and then just spending the time and doing the diligence, earning those friendships and collegial relationships. And that's it, man. I mean, I think it's pretty simple. It's a matter of, of getting your target and getting your head down and getting the job done. 
Yeah, for sure. No, that, that's a great take, Jeff. So, Jeff, I don't know about you, but I can, at least for me, I can speak. When I was young and in PT school, and even when I was just graduating, I thought I was going to do one thing, and then I ended up getting some experience and realized that's not what I want to do at all. I felt kind of lost in terms of what I actually wanted to do. But So, Jeff, for the PT who ha- is in that situation, who has no idea which path they want to take, from being like being a clinician, educator, involved in advocacy, business, etc., you know, and of course, there could be blending of each of these roles to a degree and others as well. But what would you recommend to someone to help them find their path? Yeah, it's, it's great, man. And I, I think it's a relatively common issue. I think it's exciting that we have all these different ways that we can utilize our degree. But like you said, it brings up some challenges too, because it's hard to figure out, you know, of these four primary options, you know, which one is my true love. And Brandon, you hate to have this be the answer because it's time intensive and sometimes it's financially intensive. But if you're going to figure out whether or not you love the game, you got to go play it. So, I mean, if you're not sure, like, you know, is academia for me, you've got to grab onto one of your professors and say, hey, you know, can I come for a Monday and Tuesday? And can I basically do your job with you? Do you mind if I hang out with you? Can I come to class with you? Can I see what your job looks like after hours? You know, can I come hang with you? If you're not sure if you want to be in clinic full time, you got to find a, a clinic who you think is a great human that you love hanging out with. And you got, you got to say, hey, can I come spend a couple days with you? Can I go through your whole day and just see what the grind looks like? And you, you got to, if you're going to figure out if you like the game, you got to go play it. And, and there's no exception for that. And the cool thing is now, I mean, people are so approachable. You know, if you've got a favorite teacher from college, they're not going to mind if you come and spend a couple days with them and watch them teach classes and, and ask them, you know, what, what do you do when you get home? And, you know, what, what, what does your documentation look like? And same with a clinician. And so I think the best thing to do is, is again, track a bunch of people and, and find a couple in each of those different areas that you look up to. And um, you, you, you got to go put in the one-on-one time, man. Over and over, Brandon, in these conversations, I come down to the same point, and that is you've got to go do it. You know, if you're going to figure out whether or not you love it, if you're going to figure out whether or not it's a skill you value, you've got to go play the game. And so I think this is no different. You've got to go shadow. You've got to go spend time in the clinic, spend time in the university. You've got to go out there and see what this life looks like and let that simmer with you and see how it settles. Yeah, that's great advice, Jeff. I wish I had done that kind of earlier in my PT career, I kind of did it through travel PT. As soon as I graduated, got thrown into a bunch of settings, traveled a little, you know, saw some different parts of the country. You know, that was my somewhat unintentional method for for doing that. But, you know, I I, I wish I had done it earlier in my PT career, like while I was a student, I think it would have been a little more beneficial. Yeah, dude, absolutely. I mean, the earlier you can clear up that compass, the better. But at some point, it's essential. I mean, for me, you know, research was always kind of a relative interest. I've always enjoyed digesting literature. I've always enjoyed incorporating evidence into my practice. Um, I've always enjoyed, quite honestly, just studying it and, and reading the subtleties of it and trying to figure out if it's meaningful for, for any N equals one that I'm seeing on my schedule. And then, you know, I thought, well, I wonder if I'd like doing this. You know, and recently I was involved in a systematic review and I've dabbled a little bit in a few different research articles and come to the conclusion that, you know, this is not where my passion sits. But again, that came from doing it, from, you know, getting into the research and spending time away from patients, you know, to work on the research side. And while that really trips a lot of folks' triggers, um, man, for me, it was the other way around. I found that to be, you know, truly the feel of a grind, just not being with people and not, and not working on, you know, solving clinical problems. It really highlighted to me how much I love that. And so, again, different strokes for different folks, but it wasn't until I actually jumped in and did it where I was like, you know, it's important that I always in some way contribute in this area, but this does not light my fire. Right. Like not my fire, passion. my fire is lit by standing in front of that patient, figuring and trying to figure out what is going on. How can I be of some use? 
Definitely. Jeff, we talked about this a little bit in the pre-show, but residency seems to be a highly debated topic these days, you know, in PT schools. And I'm curious your thoughts on PT residency in the current mainstream model, because there's no doubt that, you know, many passionate and driven students um, would love to do one, but they may have a hard time doing it due to finances or location or other barriers. I mean, I know I did. I, I just didn't have the finances, or at least I thought when I was a student, you know, so maybe they elect to grow from like mentors or CEUs or other less financially straining methods, you know? Uh, do you think you could tell us some pros and cons of developing through a residency and possibly what some of the pros and cons are for developing without a residency? Yeah, of course. So it's a great it's a great point, Scott. And it's a huge topic right now. You know, we're seeing more and more stuff come out with the clinic recommendations and we're seeing residencies maybe shift towards more of a mandatory role in our education. And what I would say, and, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, is that ongoing steady mentorship is critical to career development, especially early on, because the way you get sensitized into the profession, your early framework tends to be very sticky. I speak from experience of teaching around the country a lot where the guru someone learns from early on or the paradigm somebody learned from early on really tends to form a lot of their foundational views on the way they manage patients or the way they manage their career. So I think learning well early is critical because the foundation and paradigm that you form early on is going to be one that you leverage for a long time to come. So I think that getting mentorship early is critical and getting steady, structured mentorship is critical. Scott, so many clinics have good intentions. And I say this with the kindest of tone because they do have good intentions. I mean that. And so you're going to hear all the time, yeah, we have mentorship available. You know, come on to our clinic group. You know, we we really value mentorship. But unfortunately, I can tell you from experience that when the clinic gets busy and finances get crunched and things happen in the competitive market, one of the very first things to be put by the wayside is that mentorship program that everybody talked about when you got hired. And so all of a sudden, those Thursday meetings aren't happening. All of a sudden, it's 30 minutes, not an hour. And so pretty soon, that structured mentorship you were hoping and that you thought you had your hands on is starting to slip away because, you know, what doesn't get scheduled doesn't get done. And when you're in those relationships where it isn't fully structured and cemented in stone, those things seem to dwindle. So what I love about residency is it's structured. You know what you're getting. You sign up for the residency. You're in a curriculum. You've got a mentor alongside you. And it's a guarantee that you are going to go through this process. So the one thing that I really love about the residency curriculum and structure is that it's a guarantee. Now, the quality of it isn't a guarantee. Obviously, you, you got to do your due diligence on homework and you've really got to do your due diligence on not just picking a program that you like, but making sure that you're actually with a mentor that you deeply value. So when you go out to do a residency, even more than, than choosing the program or the brand that's putting it on, I would spend a lot of time looking at the individual mentor that you're actually going to be trained by. And I would go as far as saying, hey, I would reach out to that person and say, hey, can I talk to a few of the folks that, that you've coached up over the past five years? For me personally, Scott, I wouldn't pull the trigger until I heard from a couple of people, hey, I went through that year with a guy or a year with that gal and my life is forever better because of it. I mean, it yeah. was very focused, yeah. very respectful, but really, really solid ability to point out those deficits and do so in a way that doesn't crush my confidence, but also makes me realize there's major gaps in the way I'm going forward. So to, to answer your question, Scott, 
I love the idea of a residency because it's a guaranteed structured mentorship. And I think that's absolutely critical to early career development. And I think early career development is very indicative of long-term career development. So I think it's critical. But I also think that can be done outside of a structured residency. It's just you're rolling the dice a little more because, again, you have that variance. But if you can land a great mentor who truly values your development, I don't think that has to take place inside of a residency model to be every bit as high of quality. And if you can do it that way, it can probably be done at a bit less cost. And so I I really see the ability to make it happen in today's model. But for those of you who are going to go outside of the structured program, I think you've got to do even more homework and more due diligence to make sure that what they're saying is going to be there is really going to be there. And again, talking to folks who have went through it before you is probably a really good way to figure that out. Right. So it's almost like uh, going through an online education program, uh, like a degree program where it it just kind of fits the person. They have to be a little more self-driven. They have to, you know, be a little bit more diligent on their own and finding out, hey, if I'm not going to go through mentorship, I need to do this, this and this and make sure it's legit before I, I push forward. Dude, that's it. Again, it all comes down to self-reflection, doesn't it? It all comes down to really knowing yourself. Like, where am I going to thrive? Am I someone who does really well in that adult learning environment where I'm going to be largely on my own, but I'm highly structured? Or are you someone who's like, you know what? I am much better off when I have someone there kind of directing me and making sure I'm not losing my path. So again and again, it comes down to really knowing thyself. You know, where am I going to do well? And then searching out that program that fits you. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a good that's a good insight on that, Jeff. So Jeff, with kind of switching in terms of more continuing education aspect, from your experience, what are the best courses for new grads working in an outpatient orthopedic sports setting, you know, since this is more your area of expertise, to have at the start of their careers? And what are some classes that you feel are more appropriate after they have some clinical experience under their belts? You know, Brandon, a lot of it, of course, depends on what kind of framework they're coming out with. When someone graduates, they've got to take a good, honest assessment of what was really good about my program and what were some real glittering omissions because no program can cover it all, right? No program can give you an incredible, you know, manual therapy skill set, an incredible strength and conditioning skill set, an incredible clinical reasoning framework. No, no single program with the limitations of what needs to be included in the curriculum, no one has the room to make all of that happen. So I really think getting out and taking an honest look at what do I feel real strong with and then what glaring omissions do I have or what major gaps in my model are clearly there in finding some key courses to plug those gaps. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not all about chasing your weaknesses and trying to buffer those up. I'm a big believer in figuring out what your strengths are and leveraging those. But when you first come out, I mean, there's going to be some some very large gaps in your knowledge that need to be plugged so you can have a comprehensive ability to care for folks. And I, I think figuring out what are those. So if you come out of a school that is real manual therapy based, right? So a lot of reps with your hands and and, and you, you come out and you've got a really good set of mitts. But what you don't have is a real good clinical reasoning framework. I would recommend jumping into a program and taking a few courses that look at patients from a 30,000 foot view. You know, how to, how to measure irritability, how to form hypotheses and how to go through kind of that deductive reasoning model where you're figuring out, you know, what do I think is going on and how vigorous should I be with my treatment? Because while you're probably great with your actual psychomotor intervention delivery, what you might not be great with is figuring out which patient needs which intervention, why and how, right? And so knowing what your gaps are is crucial. Right. And, and that's going to help you determine, you know, do I need to be there in person? Because Brandon, if you're someone who doesn't have a good manual therapy skill set or doesn't have a great skill set in observing movement, 
you need to actually go to a course, right? You need to be there live because those are skills that are best learned in person, right? And so you jumping in and taking a bunch of online courses makes very little sense because what you what your skill gap is requires you to be there in person. So not only is that going to help you know which courses to choose, but it's actually going to help you know, you know, which mode of courses to choose between online versus live, et cetera. You're right. It's about really taking that reflection and seeing what am I weak at and then, you know, chipping away at little things here and there. And then I find that too, that once I develop that certain part, like the manual therapy box is better to a certain level. Now I can start to work on some of the other weaknesses that I have. And, you know, Justin and Morgan said it very beautifully on the last episode, you know, jack of all trades, master of some. And I think that really is a perfect statement on that one. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I listened to the episode. Great job on that. I mean, talking to Justin and Morgan is always a pleasure, but you got, that was a wonderful episode. And again, Brandon, the key is getting the right people around you so that you can figure out where you need the help. And this comes back to mentorship. This comes back to residency. This comes back to self-reflection. That's really the key, man. I mean, you don't know what you don't know, right? And that's why mentorship is so valuable. It's why these programs are so valuable. I can tell you a personal story, man. And I would recommend anybody, anybody who gets out of a program. So you talk about that new grad who's coming out you know, what courses should they take? I would really recommend, we all had a few people the year or two above us in our programs that we looked up to, right? So for me, it was Eric Chaconis, right? When I was at St. Augustine, when you're going through your school program, you look up to a couple upperclassmen, upperclass women, and you're like, God, I, I love those folks. Man, when you get out, reach out to those people and say, you came from the same program I came from, but you've been out for a couple of years. What am I missing? What did you find that our program did not prepare you well for? And they're going to have some incredible insights. So let me give you an example, Brandon. So when I went to St. Augustine at the actual St. Augustine campus there when Dr. Paris was finishing up, and I thought I got a great, great, great start with manual therapy. You know, I thought my hands were reasonable coming out of school. And I overall thought, really thought my education was great. And so I started practicing, right, for a couple of years. And then I tell this story often at my courses, but we hired Amy Pakula, who had graduated from the Kaiser residency program and was going to do her Kaiser fellowship. And it was funny because the idea, guys, was that, you know, we were going to hire Amy and I was going to kind of coach her up a little bit because I had been in the system for a couple of years and, and, and you know, I was going to kind of, you know, help get her up to speed, et cetera. And I always laugh. And I, it took me about 24 to 48 hours in the clinic with her to realize that she was better at pretty much every angle of this job than I was, you know, and it wasn't by a small margin. It was by a significant margin. You know, I couldn't help but notice that her patient visits were shorter. She seemed to be doing less and getting way more out of it. And her patients were coming less and doing better than mine. And it blew my mind. And I was like, Amy, you know, what are you doing back there? Like I'm over here working my butt off, you know, for an hour and 15 minutes with my patients. You're in there for 40 minutes. Your patient comes out. They seem totally dialed in, totally bought in. They're coming four times to get 90% better. What are you doing that I'm not? And that's when Amy really introduced me and I'll forever be thankful to this concept of clinical pattern recognition and the clinical reasoning framework. And, and the point is guys, being around other high quality people with different backgrounds really highlighted to me these discrepancies and deficits in my own clinical behaviors. So when you get out, the people you choose to hang around are so clutch because hanging around other really high quality people are going to highlight the areas where you really need to improve. And so when you get out and you're looking at where to work or you're, or you're in your first job, you have got to focus on only hanging around excellence because when you hang around excellence, right, people who are really well-rounded and high quality, it's going to highlight your areas for improvement. And if you're hanging around the right people, they're going to help move you forward towards competence in those areas. So I, I guess I would just really encourage folks to hang around those kind of people to help steer the ship. 
Yeah, that's a good point, Jeff. I went to St. Augustine too, but I went to a master's program first and then did my transitional doctorate through St. Augustine and then went on to do the uh, educational doctorate there as well. But that's one difference that I noticed was my manual skills were not quite up to par as somebody who went through the St. Augustine's on-campus program. So I that's was one of the first things I started doing as soon as I finished my transitional doctorate was to start getting more manual skills in because it really is. It just depends on where you came from and what skill set you had to begin with. Um, and Scott, that's the beauty, right, man? Because what's so cool nowadays is once you figure out what you need, getting it is easy. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, once I, once I saw Amy practicing and I realized there were some real major changes that I needed to make if I was going to get those kind of outcomes, it was easy for me to say, okay, well, Amy, where can I learn this, right? And the options, you know, the folks that were using the Maitland reasoning model back then were, you know, Kaiser, where she came from, and then evidence in motion. And so my wife didn't want to move to Oakland, which meant I didn't want to move to Oakland. Right. So, you know, my other option, um, I was kind of looking around and that's when I realized evidence in motion incorporated a lot of that reasoning. It's like, okay, here we go. Now I can do this two or three year model and go through EIM. And that was probably the best overall decision I made in my entire career. So the point is having someone help you see where the gaps are. That's the hard part. Hanging around the right people and being willing to self-reflect to find your gaps is the hard part. Once you find the gaps, there's so many great programs that solving them is easy. Exactly. Yeah, uh, Jeff, point. you did a podcast episode recently um, that kind of talked on the theme of paralysis by comparative analysis. Uh, do you think you could touch briefly on that as it relates to professional development after one takes a course? Uh, as that's kind of important for our audience to kind of know about, I think. Yeah, cool, man. And thanks for listening to that episode. Um, I really appreciated putting that one out because I see it all the time. Right. So th this idea of, of paralysis by comparative analysis or intimidation by excellence, right? However you want to look at it, you see this happen where, you know, folks go to a course. So I'll bring up an example. So, so Steve Short, who's someone who's on ice faculty was at the ice sampler out in Portland, Oregon, um, a month or two ago. And Steve is the PT for the Denver Nuggets. So he's working with high level athletes. He's just a guy who has an unbelievable fluency and knowledge regarding all things movement and human performance. I mean, the guy just lives and breathes it. He loves it. And so to hear him talk is equal parts exciting, but also intimidating, right? Because when someone has that level of knowledge, again, while it's great that it's highlighting to you that you don't have that level of knowledge, sometimes it can almost over highlight that to the point where you're like, God, well, he knows so much more than me. Is it even really worth it for me to learn a little bit? Right. And so, uh, again, watching Steve talk and specifically he was going over the uh, dynamic warm up. Right. And talking about how depending on who his athlete is, he modifies that dynamic warm up. So he incorporates, you know, if he knows that someone really needs some overhead mobility work to thrive at, at their activity endeavor, his dynamic warm up incorporates overhead mobility work. And so not only is he getting the machine up and ready and setting the tone for the session, but he's very skillfully incorporating what that individual needs into that dynamic warm up. So not only are you warming up, but you're getting work done at the same time. And so he was going through how we, how we reasons through this. And I could see a lot of people in the audience almost like, God, like this guy is so far ahead in the way he's thinking with this stuff that I don't even know if it's worth it for me to try. And that's something that I see Scott all the time is, you know, you listen to Mike Eisenhart talk about population health for two hours and all you can think is, could I ever possibly get to a level where I had that amount of knowledge and that level of fluency? And the answer is maybe not. 
because Mike has spent 20 years with his hands in this one area, dominating that scene and learning and learning and learning through trial and error. But don't let that stop you from doing something. Because what I see, Scott, all the time is that people get so intimidated by the level of knowledge of a presenter or the level of knowledge of a teacher that they say, you know what, that person is so far ahead of me, it's really not even worth me trying to incorporate some of that information because I'm so far away from where they are. And I think that that paralysis by competitive analysis is a devastating thing that happens too often. And instead, I think what you, what you want to do is, number one, be impressed, right? It's good to be impressed and inspired. But at the same time, remember that from, from any given moment, whether it's your self-reflection following a patient session or whether it's your reflection following a really great presentation from a really knowledgeable presenter, your goal is to get a little better every time, every event in your life. Right, your goal is to get a little better. We don't make quantum leaps as people. We don't. It's not how progress happens. We make really small changes that if put together progressively and cumulatively, right, become very significant shifts in what we can do to help people. So right. when you and that, it's kind of like a little bit of the the whole point between or behind uh, PT version 2.0, right? Yeah. At least do something. Instead of going to you know, 9 to 5 and collecting a paycheck, do more. Just do something, you know? Do something, right? So when you walk away from Steve, right, as opposed to saying, okay, how can I do a perfect dynamic warm-up just as good as Steve would do it with my first patient Monday morning, what you should be saying is, hey, Monday morning, I'm going to do a dynamic (laughs) warm-up, right? And, And that may or may not be perfect, but I am going to start to engage in that space, Right. You don't need to say on Monday morning, how am I going to do a comprehensive health facing evaluation the same way that Mike Eisenhart would do it? You need to say, you know what? On Monday morning, I'm going to ask that person a few really key questions that might give me some insight into their overall systemic health. How are they sleeping? How are they eating? right? How's their blood pressure? I'm going to measure, I'm going to do a couple things that I have not done historically that are going to move me in the direction of excellence, right? That one day, many years from now, I might get to where that person was. But what I'm not going to do is be the same damn practitioner that I was on Friday. And that's the goal, man. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think another thing that you said that really helped also, Jeff, was realizing that it doesn't need to be perfect. Like you don't need to know all that 100% deep level stuff to be able to help most folks. With that new content area. Yeah, it's never going to be perfect. Even And those guys will be the first guys to say, hey, for me, it isn't perfect either. You know, you're just seeing a gap between where I am and where you are. And all that should do is tell you to get it in first gear and let's roll. Yeah, for sure. So, Jeff, we like to end each episode by posing this question to our guests. So, if you could change one aspect of higher education, uh, DPT or other healthcare education related, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? There's no doubt, man, if I look at DPT programs and the way that we're trained, the area that I would love to see refined and and more attention given to is the clinical education perspective, right? Because how many times have you guys heard, because Lord knows it's something I come across almost every week, if, if not every day, is people saying, you know what, what I learned in school was great, but boy, it was really when I went out on my clinical where I felt like in the first couple days, I learned almost as much as I did in my entire program. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, you hear that all the time. And, and the reason you hear that is not a fault of the school. It's not, it's not that what they taught in the didactic portion wasn't absolutely critical to, to serving that foundation. It's because you're playing the game. And, and you can watch a game all you want. Once you step on the court, the learning escalates rapidly. And so once you're actually doing the act, 
right? It's a very deeper level of learning. So you hear that all the time that people say, well, now that I'm actually in the clinic, a lot of this is making sense. And I feel like I'm learning at an exponential pace. And that's a wonderful thing to hear. And I think that CIs who are out there doing a great job are rewarded by hearing that statement on a very regular basis. And a shameless plug to all of them who are doing that. Thank you. Like to those CIs who are out there investing in their students, you are an absolute key component for us developing a profession that really helps people. And I just, I can't say enough for those that are doing that service. So Brandon, to answer that question, that ClinEd component, I think what we see far too often is that schools don't have enough sites. They can't really screen and maintain only high quality sites because a lot of times, man, their goal is simply to get enough sites to get their bodies into. And so it becomes this thing where you're just trying to get your students through it as opposed to really creating an environment where they're developing excellence during it. So if we could change one thing, I would love to see curriculums during that clinical education component where as opposed to schools sending students out to sites and saying, well... You know, I, I hope they pick something up. You know, I, I hope I hope it works out okay and, and they learn some stuff. Instead, we, we develop a curriculum during that time that's shared between the clinical sites and the program where these clinical sites know what the student's going to be learning when and, and have that be, like we said earlier about, about mentorship and residency, have some level of structure during that so everybody knows what's being learned, why, and how that incorporates back into the actual um, university curriculum. If we could make some key changes in the quality of clinical education education, we'd be looking at PTs coming out with a very different skill set on when they enter as new grads. Yeah, great take on that, Jeff. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast with us today and just sharing your insight. It it was an absolute pleasure. Do, Do you think you could tell our audience a little bit about where they can find you online? Yeah, you bet, man. So um, as far as uh, my company, we're at www.ice.physio or ptonice.com. Those will both get you to the website. If you don't mind typing a lot, instituteofclinicalexcellence.com will also get you there. So that has all of our courses, man. It's got our videos about you know what we do and who we do it with and our faculty. And if you want to kind of see the whole world, it's on there. On social media, um, you can find me at DPT. My email is jeffmoredpt at gmail.com. I'm also out there quite a bit on the evidence and motion circuit. So I actually teach uh, evidence in motion this weekend down in San Antonio. If you've never made it out to Manipalooza, I get the absolute distinguished pleasure of teaching with Tim Flynn every year at Manipalooza. We teach a, a couple different courses, um, morning and afternoon session, usually on Saturday, as well as occasionally I get the opportunity to give one of the live talks that we do um, on Sunday or, or Friday. So those are all the areas that I'm out there um, hanging out with. Um, I teach at South College. So for those of you who are pre-DPT or, or in uh, DPT school, I do teach at the South College program, the two-year program down out of Knoxville, Tennessee. So actually in two weeks, I get to go down there for a week and uh, help out uh, Mark Shepard and those guys doing the PT Fundamentals course. So that's it, man. And if you're a patient and you're in the Fort Collins, Windsor area, my true love remains to be clinic. So Monday and Wednesday, I'm in clinic I'm at Colorado in Motion in Windsor, Colorado. So the clinic is actually owned by Tim Flynn and Terry and the group. And I'm over there Monday and Wednesday. So um, that's my world, man. Awesome, Jeff. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, you bet. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate this. You guys are off to a, a phenomenal start with this podcast. I've enjoyed every episode, so it's really an honor to be on. Well, thank you, Jeff. That that really means a lot. It truly does. And thanks again. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast. On Instagram, HET Podcast. On Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. And the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. 
And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.